Welcome to the series where we explore what must ooze from the box. This is Small Plot Podcast with me, Ellen Reed. Time I stop showing my drawing and never again mention stars. Instead, I will talk about golf, money, politics, and neckties. And everyone was pleased to have met such a sensible man. So, I live my life alone, without anyone I could really talk to. Until a short time ago. Paris calling flight FBDXY. Paris calling flight FBDXY. Hello friends and welcome to Small Plot Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Reed, and each week I will traverse the tricky terrain of critical theory and try to achieve a body without organs. This week I'm joined by my colleague Louise Fryne where we discuss Donna Haraway's A Cyborg Manifesto. I had a really interesting discussion with Louise which actually lasted three hours that I've condensed into an hour and a half and it helped me think through a lot of things with regards to my own perspective and how I've often aligned myself with certain political ideologies and social movement campaign directives that I haven't necessarily agreed with but I've been kind of working through them in the back end over time and I think that this is really important for us to acknowledge is that we can't always get it right and no one way really truly works and we constantly have to be striving towards creating better communities and ultimately trying to achieve a world that works better. So ultimately my takeaway from my conversation with Louise is that we need to move away from thinking that particular certain ways of doing things do work and we need to acknowledge that there is power in multiplicity and there's power in getting it wrong and there's power in messiness and there's power in fucking up sometimes because the way the world is functioning now is that we are all deeply aligned to a moralizing culture that is predicated on being on the quote-unquote right side of history. But the right side of history, it doesn't help everyone. So I do tend to question this kind of idea of what who uh, whose right is it anyway? I'm very concerned about this kind of idea of like right ways to do justice or right ways to do climate action or right ways to, you know do anything and I suppose Haraway for me has been really helpful in thinking through the value of partiality and I think that quote about single vision is more dangerous than many-handed monsters is very important and I do want you to all reflect on that you know move away from your own perspective and look at something from someone else's and you'll be able to see far much more things. It's very dangerous to isolate yourself into one perspective and think that this is the only way of doing things. I've seen it absolutely eviscerate communities and it's it's the reason why I think we haven't had a a solid left because no one can fucking agree on anything because any everyone's just trying to be a better leftist than everyone else. And I know that we addressed this in the first episode but I think it's important to always think about those things and think about what are we doing to make the world a better place? Are we deciding that the way that we've always done things that is fucking over loads of people in the process is the right way to do it? Probably not. And this is what I'm trying to work through in my own research, particularly with regards to fixed identity positions and how we adhere to them and covet them and act like there's no other way. But this feeds into a lot of other things like racism and transphobia and 
it feeds into so many social structures that has actually actively poisoned the way the world works, in my opinion. So I do hope you enjoy this episode and I do hope you get a chance to read a cyborg manifesto. I would also recommend reading Situated Knowledges. I think it's very good. And reflect on Haraway and do let us know how it affected you. So with that, I will leave you here and enjoy the podcast. So rather than me um, giving probably a very misinformed introduction to Louise, I will hand over to the Queen of Nuance and just like to welcome Louise and tell us a little bit about yourself and your research, if you can. Hello, everybody. This is kind of odd. I feel like I'm on Star Trek. <laughs> just talking to the entire enterprise. Um yeah, so actually this is really funny because uh, I listened to the first episode of the podcast yesterday um, as I was doing my research, um, which I didn't leave till the last minute at all. <laughs> um, and I was listening to you giving me kind of an intro on the last episode and I was like, damn, Ellen knows my shit better than I do, um, which was very funny and also it was very heartwarming. So thank you very much. So yeah, my research is, uh, I mean, it, it is kind of about social media technologies, but to be more specific, as um, we are told to do in all uh, PhD applications, um, I chose the Instagram platform. And so what I'm doing or what I did for my PhD research was I, well, I myself have got a somewhat substantial interest in going to the gym and training, um, weightlifting training to be specific. Um, That kind of came about, I think, five or six years ago now. Um, And at that time, there were a a much smaller number of people on Instagram uh, posting about their training and I saw that starting to grow and grow and grow. I went and I worked as a quote-unquote journalist, mm, <laughs> staff writer. Um, and then I I needed another form of income, so I did a qualification in digital marketing. And it was all at the time that the influencer industry was kicking off. So went and did a master's in Trinners. I was not a winner um, up there. You're um, a winner. Oh, mm, a trying time, but we'll forget about that. Um, <laughs> actually, I had a very interesting um, kind of seminar when I was in Trinity, actually, where we discussed Cyborg Manifesto, um, which we will get to later. But yeah, so I applied for a PhD in sociology. I'm not a sociologist, um, but it's... It's, I don't know, I've ended up here. I'm moonlighting as a sociologist and my research took at its at a por- main point of interest is the Instagram influencer industry as it relates to fitness. So I initially had the idea that Instagram is the ultimate panopticon, um, mm. meaning that 
like you can see everyone on Instagram. So therefore, there's a subconscious understanding that people can see you all the time as well. And I wanted to dig into how that influences the choices people make about their actual physical bodies. Um, so what do you see in all of these representations of quote unquote fit people? Like what what's the influence that that has on kind of our own understandings of our physical bodies and what we will do to our bodies? Um, it kind of grew legs a little bit um, as I got into my PhD research. Um, and I do I. The thing that changed the direction of the research really was I got the okay from my supervisor to put on my tinfoil hat <laughs> um, and really dig into the surveillance aspect of it. So my research is, it, it has two parts to it. I, I ended up doing an ethnography of the fitness influencer industry in Ireland. And then I also took on a more social and technology studies hat and actually studied the Instagram algorithm um, and how those two studies combine is the creation of an algorithmic value system. So this is what I was talking to Ellen about earlier. The main finding of my, of my whole PhD is that when people say, oh, I see all of this stuff on Instagram because of the algorithm, or if an influencer says, I have to post this because of an algorithm, that's actually bullshit what they're actually talking about is an algorithmic value system, which is both a window and a mirror of kind of society's value system as a whole. And how that relates to fitness would be that we value a thin body, a thin, able body, a white, cisgender, thin, able body mm -hmm. um, above all other types of bodies. So not necessarily groundbreaking, but the kind of the masquerades that technology allows us to play is is what really interested me so that's where i am uh wearing my tinfoil hat three and a half years into this phd but uh you know i think i found some interesting things i think as well even though you say it's not exactly groundbreaking but it it is because we have never had these conversations properly and I think it's exactly what you said about like, oh, it's because of the algorithm that people actually don't want to face up to the reality that they're complicit in a racist, misogynistic, transphobic society, even just by the very virtue of trying to, quote unquote, better themselves by engaging in like a fitness lifestyle. Yeah, and like it's, it's kind of, I think... I came to doing, like to starting my PhD and to starting the research as a whole uh, from quite a cynical mm. <laughs> or jaded position. Um, and then I kind of, I, you know, I was kind of warned that, you know, a PhD isn't supposed to end up, you're like you're not supposed to agree with yourself. 100 percent yeah yeah when you do the PhD and I was like oh well I never agree with myself anyway have you met me um and I, and it was kind of challenging to me because I, I just I was like but this is what's happening I was like this is what's mm. happening and I guess what I learned from that was <laughs> nobody has spent as much time thinking about 
um, my PhD topic as I had uh, or as I do. So what seems quite obvious to me is actually very much like in camouflage um, for mm-hmm. people that are kind of like two or three steps removed <laughs> from the research. And I was like, OK, so I have to figure out a way to explain all of this very simple stuff in a in an academic way, in a sociological way, and also keep myself interested. And I think you did that very brilliantly in the piece that you wrote for Brainstorm recently um, in responding to kind of these two or three steps removed kind of social hegemonic discourses around, um, you know, we need to keep the gyms open for mental health reasons. Um, But as you so evidently pointed out, just because you change the space and change your routine it doesn't really compromise your mental health. It's the it's the worth, I guess, that we attach to the gym. Am I yeah. wrong or right in saying that? I guess I no. I would, maybe I, I would agree with you, and I would even say as well, like it's it's the worth that we attach to the act of doing something. Mm-hmm. So, like, and I think I managed to kind of get at this in a way in the brainstorm article which was harder to write than I thought it would be but um it's this compulsion that we have I say we very broadly actually uh, but like in western societies in particular like this compulsion to always be doing something to always be productive you know Mm -hmm. to always be active in some way I guess the particular facet of that that I I'm most interested in is exercise, like how that manifests in like obsessive compulsive exercise. Mm-hmm. But it's like we've attached so much worth and value, both like money-wise and just morally, to people that are always fucking hustling. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it's like the and a lot of that kind of weird toxic positivity thing about like don't stop grinding or like no days off kind of stuff um yeah that is just fed to us like yeah and that I I, that did finally or I finally managed a way to get that to kind of stand out Mm -hmm. in my PhD in particular and it was something that I was really like I was trying to get at that because to me it felt like it was the real meat of of the actual conversation that my PhD is having with mm-hmm. itself. But it was that it's a I guess it's in academic terms it would be like a particular kind of subjectivity that has emerged in kind of the in the twenty first century really, which is like an, a lot of people would call it like the entrepreneurial self. Mm-hmm or the brand itself um, and I guess in my PhD in particular is dealing with or researching pe- people who identify as women so there's kind of like an entrepreneurial femininity um, which is particularly like I guess obvious or particularly evident in like any kind of social media labour not just fitness influencers, but like the muas and the, you know, the lifestyle bloggers 
whatever you call them. I don't know. Yeah. Or Pippo. <laughs> yeah. It's that like girl boss feminism that we have kind of maybe probably is, I suppose, mostly attributed to like the neoliberal era of like, you know, finding a market in every possible yeah. place that it's like we're going to create a market out of, you know, women being CEOs and somehow that's liberation but it's actually just like are they just going to exploit people further um and like how complicit are we in you know commending those things as well like being like oh my god isn't that so amazing that this person has achieved all this stuff and like fair play to whoever for doing whatever but I think what you're getting at is like the underbelly of of those things and and the the kind of social and cultural structures that are really harmful that you know it's like when you take off the mask of that kind of entrepreneurial self it's actually much more horrific than it actually is yeah it is and like I think like the particularly nefarious aspects of it for me are like one this idea of like selling empowerment to people you know and 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 telling people that they can become fierce strong independent empowered women mostly um by buying a 12-week body transformation pdf Mm and just and and losing weight like that's like that's what's come up so much in my research and I actually had a really hard time believing (laughs) I I actually I thought that it was just me being very cynical looking at the industry but three and a half years later no that that is what's happening and then like the second thing that I find is like that toxic positivity Mm. that exists um and I I just like in my own research like I've been kind of mm, I would say like I've been a little bit disturbed at how easy it has become for people to um kind of package or make like aesthetically pleasing or instagrammable messages that are telling people to adopt for example like a ketogenic diet um Mm -hmm. and that 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 will that will cure cancer you know and it's just like it's it's very hard like it's 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 really really damaging like it's it's terrible because what's attached to that is like this message of I took control of my life and I decided that I was going to have the carnivore diet and I cured my depression, anxiety, ADHD, OCD, like mm. whatever that DSM manual is. Like, yeah, and, of <laughs> yeah, and 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 the the message that you get from that is that if you eat nothing but T-bone steaks for six months, then all you are is constipated. It's a personal failing. You didn't try mm-hmm. hard enough. 
And like I have personal experience with trying all kinds, all kinds of diets back in the day, like never did the carnivore or keto diet though. But like that is very much how that is the the messaging that you get and, and what you start to believe about yourself is that you just didn't try hard enough. Yeah. Like that there's some sort of personal failure, you know, that you didn't try hard enough or you weren't disciplined enough. And, you know, if you had just worked harder, mm-hmm. if you had just committed like that, uh, like 20% more, you know, your acne would be gone. And and I think it's really problematic on Instagram in particular because there's like a whole host of chronic and progressive illnesses that exist to which there there is no cure, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I heard actually a person I follow on Instagram for the last couple of months who I have found to be a breath of fresh air. Um, is she's actually a dietitian. She's based in the US. Um, her name is Anna Sweeney. I think her handle is like Dietitian Anna. Okay. And she um, she works like she's an eating disorder specialist. Like in her like in her private practice, like that's almost exclusively what she deals with. But her she she has a chronic illness. She has MS, and she was diagnosed with that when she was fifteen, and it has progressed like over time as that particular disease or condition does and she spoke about how she had tried particular dietary interventions that you know had promised the author of this book who was a medical doctor which is very suspicious had Mm. promised that um she could like stop the ms or like she could cure the ms and what um Anna was saying was that like after whatever a couple of months of doing this she felt like crap (laughs) she felt like she felt like crap she felt like socially isolated she was very restrictive and previous to that she always had a good relationship with food she was still in the middle of um like her own supervision and and training for to be an eating disorder specialist um and she was like it was horrible and, I, and and also she still had MS at, you know at the end of the day and she was like it's it was just really interesting to actually see somebody uh, talk about it from a personal experience because she was like I was a person who I had like my relationship with you know my my body and, and food up until that point had been fine and she she was like I she actually said she's like you know I operate from an incredibly privileged position so I can't imagine if I had any other type of lived experience if I would have made it out yeah and it's just it, it is like toxic it's toxic and I think it's a little bit dangerous but sure. and I think as well what you said there about like the whole idea about um about you know oh if you just tried a little harder if you just were more committed it's always as well positioned, I feel anyway, for what I see, as like incredibly easy to just switch on this like productive or like this motivated mindset that is really reductive as well, as you said, for like anyone else's lived experience if they are in any predicament. And 
it's just like it's like this kind of solve all where it's just like oh but if you just like take things slow and like go back to the bare minimum like you'll be fine but in actual fact it requires so much money time and resources to achieve these kind of things and and sometimes it's just never going to be achievable for people um particularly you know if you're trying to change your your body shape a lot of the time you need surgery or you need photoshop to make to make your body look the way it's quote unquote supposed to be yeah or to just like I and I kind of hate saying this because I feel like it could brand me as like a biological essentialist however (laughs) when it does come to to physical aesthetics I I don't think that people actually do pay enough attention to the physiology and the genetic component Mm -hmm. that's held there um because like if I take me for example I can work out as much as I want to um but I'm not going to look like 99% of the photos on Instagram Mm. you know and and that's fine I'm pretty sure at some point that would have really really bothered me and upset me but I have managed to develop a develop a relationship with my body that is not that that isn't fixated Mm -hmm. on how it looks I'm certainly now more interested in how how I can get my body to perform you know certain yes in the gym like there's literally two lifts that you care about when you do weightlifting which are the snatch and clean and jerk and at the moment like and I don't for however much longer like I kind of just care about doing the best I can at those two lifts I like Mm. I can't and like you know physics (laughs) yeah it 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 plays a large part in 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 those two particular movements um that I'm talking about so you know you have to eat yeah you have to eat a Mm. lot and and it for me it has been an exercise in um kind of in letting go of a lot of the uh kind of the beliefs that I had about the body and how you look um that I think came about from nowhere shocking I'm, I'm pretty sure it was just the way this, the process of socialization that I went through um the culture that you know what I grew up in and that I came into adolescence in mm. and probably had a lot to do with it and I've gotten older and certainly in the last year and a half I have had really really challenging times with my health and as a byproduct of that, my body. And I had to kind of go through a whole process of learning that all again. You know, like literally mm. from from very simple tasks. Um, and I had to kind of, kind of figure out my relationship with my body all over again. And then I had to come back to my PhD research and I was like, oh, fuck this. <laughs> the body again. <laughs> like... Literally, I was like, oh, I can't. I actually can't escape it. Um, mm. And and I know that you have been, uh, you've heard me come complain and rant about this quite a lot over the last couple of months. But it 
it it wasn't until I had the particular lived experiences that I had in the last year that I was able to actually say and kind of take that slightly harder line or that more argumentative line and be like fitness culture on Instagram is fucked (laughs) yeah and I think we've we've talked about this a lot like and I think coming from a particular background is really important to your insight into a certain area and you know I think we we had a conversation over WhatsApp the other day about these kind of damaging ideas about you know research isn't me search um oh god yeah but you know you when like as you have the same like I have the same in my research I cannot I cannot get out of talking about bisexualities because I live that you know like yeah um so but I think in both respects like and with a lot of PhD projects or research projects in general I think that ability to say you know that ability to say I think this and not from a fixed identity perspective but just like reclaiming your space and reclaiming the bad shit that happened to you through that argumentative hardline I think it's really important Um, yeah I think this actually potentially could segue quite nicely into mm -hmm. uh, discussing the cyborgs Mm -hmm. because I I really don't feel that um, and this is just my opinion but I don't feel that anybody whether they're doing research or otherwise can really speak authoritatively from a fixed position Mm -hmm. because there's always going to be some aspect of your person or some aspect of your lived experience that you're then diminishing exactly and I think kind of originally when I came across the the cyborg manifesto that is that was the message that I got from it Hmm. And like the, this is what I remember talking about in that oh that seminar <laughs> when I was doing my master's, which was a trying time. Um, but it was that there's there was so much back and forth like argumentation or just like disagreement within the group, like the seminar group about like. What is a cyborg? Is a cyborg male? I think it's female. Like, oh. <laughs> and I remember just actually, I would just put up my hand, like, really aggressively in the air. And the, it was our course director who was leading the seminar. And she was like, yes, Louise, did you have something you wanted to contribute? And I was like, a cyborg isn't anything. And everyone was like, what? <gasps> But I was like, it's not, I just felt, I remember feeling so strongly at that moment. I was like, it's not a thing. I was like, it's mm. a concept. It is a way that you can view all of the structures in the world or like in, in existence or in your like lived existence or whatever. And everybody was just looking at me like I literally had become a cyborg. 
it was really strange and I just I had such a hard time with one trying to express what I meant because I didn't have the language I didn't have the academic terms and phrases that everybody up in Trinity just seems to be able to like shit out <laughs> I just didn't have them um and I yeah and I was like it, it's just it's I think I actually ended up just like just being really aggressive and being like it's a metaphor yeah (laughs) and then yeah it probably took like a two-week hiatus from my master's at that point I think that is so reflective though of like the problems with like this is a total side note but the problems with like gender and women's studies programs that like we when we hear gender and women's studies or when we hear just gender studies it's just like "Mm, women and (laughs) and I think it's just like they automatically see this like sexy fembot in their minds (laughs) when they think of a cyborg um and it's just like uh, please see all of the manifesto, not just one part, um, but like that it's such a it's it, it's a it's a discourse on, you know, finding ways out of gender. And yeah, see if I had those words at the yeah. time. That's what I could. <laughs> yeah, um, particularly as well, not just gender, but like blurring the boundaries between what constitutes human and what constitutes machine and is there room for animals in this um and I actually just as you were saying earlier on about um about your PhD I was thinking actually back to when I used to do TRX and the motto of the gym was we don't use machines we just make them and uh, (laughs) now I'm just like oh my god that's uh, sorry, I just remember there. There's something about CrossFit, um, which has like a very similar kind of motto. I I find that like in I guess in, in my experience in the particular I guess fitness circles, um, I would have run in which was mostly just CrossFit, um, to be honest. Now, and I will put my hand up and I will say, um. One, I never actually stood by the whole corporate. I just, like, it's, I think I knew from the second that I walked into the CrossFit gym, I was like, oh, something about this is toxic. Mm. I was like, something about this is toxic. And then I went home and Googled it, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's, I just, I think I Googled it. And, like, from one cursory glance, at the website I was like oh that is some toxic patriotism and it's homophobic and also it's very very white and why 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 are all why are all the women like sexualized in such a way yet I mean I was like sign me up (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) if I wanted to get it I wanted to get a good workout Mm. Uh, which I did uh, for quite a while but it does like and like CrossFit I think was my probably a starting point for my PhD as a whole 
because it has this very strange like um fascination with an essentialism which is like man woman but we together can become the machine and I'm like okay so it's like they read the first paragraph of the cyborg manifesto in CrossFit HQ and then they were like that's enough it's brilliant we'll take it (laughs) you know yeah Um, yeah, and the the military background as well to CrossFit I think is very interesting when we think about that machine thing yeah um yeah like it it's like how I how I used to use um, the example of the cinematic masterpiece that is Dwayne the Rock Johnson's performance in San Andreas, um, a little-known action movie, which came about. It co-stars the mom, which, in case anybody is wondering, yes, is also the mom from The Haunting of Hill House. This just brings me back to the first week of my PhD where I was just Googling spy kids for ages because you were writing about this at the time, I think. Yeah, I think so. But it's, you know, yeah, I definitely did. Um, When I was at my haunted house, my smart home gothic um, tangent. But yeah, like it's the the CrossFit, the militarism, to me, it's exactly the same as this like obsession that people have with superhero movies and in that movie San Andreas like it is literally like the bottom line in that movie for me is that Dwayne The Rock Johnson is such a masculine man also who has a heart of gold protecting his estranged wife and his daughter from a natural disaster like he like such is his masculinity, his heterosexual masculinity, that he could potentially stop the next great earthquake. And it ends, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it, and I highly recommend it, but like it ends with him looking out on the wreckage of San Francisco and then a giant American flag like appears. <laughs> and I just, it's, it's, it's mad to me how it's, they it's just this really big gross convergence of all a lot of really problematic fixed identity yeah and I'm like I don't actually like in in reference to like Haraway's cyborg I don't feel like that was the kind of cyborg she was talking about no (laughs) and I suppose uh this is the question that um I'd like to ask, I suppose, about like, what do you think are the kind of key takeaways from a cyborg manifesto? So obviously it is like this problem with essentialized identity politics, but also Haraway's cyborg is very much rooted in that kind of sci-fi, cyberpunk, B-movie horror era of the late 70s and 80s. Um, like thinking about the kind of reclamation of like pulp sci-fi fiction Mm. 
with like Blade Runner and stuff like that that like these are all things that we've kind of like taken in like a pop cultural setting and have been made kind of like freaky and untrustworthy yeah um so what is empowering I suppose about like monstrous or I suppose not not deviant deviant is too clear-cut um I suppose like a non-human you know reclaiming that kind of thing yeah I think like and I think this again is a question that I always find myself asking is like what's wrong with the cyborg you know like Mm. when how how did it happen that like automatically when you think of a cyborg you think of a killer robot (laughs) or you know Frankenstein's monster or like the West World I don't know if you've seen that TV series no yeah it's mad see that like I also wrote a paper about Westworld and I actually yeah I, I mentioned the cyborg manifesto but in that masters that I did um but it, it was all I think I, I asked a question in that paper of like why are all of the robots women and how come the representation that we get in these narratives is that the cyborgs the the women cyborgs are so different and other that they are terrifying and so we must kill them or else subject them to all kinds of misogynistic violence and I was like hmm what does that say about society (laughs) (laughs) it it, it just and and I guess like the, the whole question for me is like but how can how can people have such an issue with cyborgs or cyborg theory when we are cyborgs? I mm. mean, like every like every other person that I see these days has an Apple Watch <laughs> or a Fitbit mm. or some it, it like interacts with some form of technology on a very like regular, intense basis, and it's there's to me there's very little difference between like the contemporary western individual and a cyborg Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be perfectly honest but that is just how I understand cyborg theory I guess and it's kind of like you know it's not just uh I wouldn't say it's it's just specific to like the Silicon Valley tech bros. You know, I would say that technology has developed in such that um, we are all in some way interacting with technology. You know, like I don't have an Apple Watch, but I I'm I'm constrained by different um, manifestations of that technology in in another way. Like, you know, even down to, oh, like, the amount of tax that I have to pay. I'm like, that's also a technological system that designs Mm. that. Like, it's very much, it's the interactiveness and the the interconnectivity that's so much, that 
that is so much of what society is built on now and like that's why I would find at the moment like yeah Haraway's original 1985 writing is problematic but Mm. it's still very useful to me it is really useful I think as well what you said about um that kind of that we're connected so much to technology I'm just thinking there about like you know we all have smartphones and they're essentially like an extension of our bodies almost um but also an extension of our identities and we use that technology to construct our identities whether that's like you know hopping on TikTok trends or it's you know using filters on Instagram or like retweeting people who you like politically align with that we are creating our identities outside of kind of I guess what like Goffman said about the front stage self I'm sorry for bringing up Goffman twice in one conversation um he was on to something he was on to something as was Judy um (laughs) but you know that whole idea that like we don't have a front stage self and a backstage self anymore we have almost a front stage and then you know tech stage front like self that like we have like multiple kind of layers of selves through the technology does that make sense am I understanding yeah where you're coming from uh yeah yeah yeah, absolutely I think I'm just I'm always just afraid to talk about Gotham because I feel like people are going to be like but you haven't read everything he wrote and I'm like I know that there's a front stage and a backstage and that's pretty much that seems to be it but um, that's all I know. I mean, that's because we're paid to teach it. <laughs> you know, like, I, I mean, I couldn't care less about what he said in 1959 because we don't live there anymore and people have talked about it in much more interesting ways. I think actually that reminds me of um, kind of the academic in influencer scholarship um she is i have met her um twice i think at at different conferences um i'm still incredibly intimidated by her but she's so so nice she's really lovely um her name is crystal abedin she's on twitter and her handle is wish cries um and her work and research is kind of, I mean, like the basis for my research. Um, I think she originally has a background in anthropology, mm. but um, she has a blog as well um, where like she actually blogs, <laughs> you know? Remember mm. when people used to do that? I remember that, yeah. Yeah. Um, blogs about her research, blogs about being an academic, blogs about like a lot of the all like a lot of her experiences in navigating academia are incredibly interesting um because she is sure she, she did her phd in the states but um oh no she no sorry i'm wrong she did her phd in singapore but now i think she works teaches and and kind of researches like predominantly from australia but like she's 
like she's like Mrs. Worldwide. Mm. Um, she's incredible, but a lot of her work um, would have used Goffman. Like to me, she is a Goffman scholar. Um, mm. And yeah, I think if, if people are interested, they should definitely check out her blog because um, she she talks about a lot of this and she is also like very public facing. So if it mm-hmm. is a thing that you would like to read any of her work, um, I know that she is totally open to people sending her DMs on Twitter and she'll get back to you with the PDF. Um, I think she's really, really cool. But yeah, she talks a lot about Goffman and the front stage and the backstage. And I think, like, for me, the way that my own experiences and research has gone is that it's slightly more like a cyborg in that, like, there's the front stage and then there's the back end mm. um, where all of the, like, technical, computational, messy, but organised very well like where all of that happens in terms of like if you consider like the front stage as being like you know the you that you present to the world in everyday interactions and like you know how you would decide to go out and canvas for this particular political candidate or whatever but then in the back end of things is where you figure that stuff out and where you're mm. not actually, like the back end, you could be in multiple different identity. Like you could, you could be occupying or be experiencing the world from various identities. So it's not necessarily fixed at the back end. It's where you do the fixing. And then the front end is the you that you present to the normal people if that makes sense. It does. And this is exactly what I want to talk to you about, is this whole idea of like existence in contradictory locations and Haraway cites uh, Sandoval and talking about oppositional consciousness about that there is a conscious break within the ideology that you participate in, but you still remain within that ideological sphere. And I think that we often like criticize people and I am I am like complicit in this also um, for people like you know taking a certain stance on something like as I do in my PhD about people you know talking about yes equality as like we're gonna have so much fun and then y'all get married and I can be very critical of that Um, but what my PhD is trying to do is figure out how people negotiate with that and why they feel they have to to adhere to these certain things because I think that there's so much pressure within kind of this current I suppose like in insanely connected world that we live in Mm. that And it's what you said kind of about Instagram as that panopticon or like social media as a panopticon that Mm. everyone's watching you and everyone's going to screenshot your shitty takes. And like, I know for a fact there's definitely people like sending this podcast to people being like, look at Ellen, who the fuck do they think they are? Like, you know, and like just like shitting all over 
someone else for what they put out into the world, that we don't see what happens in the back end and we don't see what happens in that messiness and that complexity. And I love what Donna Haraway says about having single vision produces worse illusions than double vision or many headed monsters. Yeah. And that when we only take the surface value of what people put out into the world or we, you know, make assumptions about what we interpret on surface level, we get ourselves in the shits really quickly. Yeah, I I think as well, like I think from your perspective, but like because both of your lived experiences and also what you are researching, like I am very interested in like how you would see the cyborg manifesto because like the the thing and like the line that jumped out at it for me when I was reading it like in the context of having a conversation with you about it was when she said that like effective politics requires speaking in the language of domination which I think kind of sum up or what we have just been discussing which is that like that front-facing self is going to make itself fit in what it in what the outside world deems as acceptable but in that mm-hmm. back end is where all of that messiness happens where all of your hot takes like that's where you make all your hot takes mm-hmm. you know it's it's where you're really figuring things out both about like the self and also the self in society yeah absolutely it's it's like as well like I'm thinking there about the whole language of domination and I'm wondering it brings me back to some of the the interesting discussions that I've had with people involved in the campaign who will not be named um but um uh about this idea that like politics is about compromise but it uh, but it is it's back into this whole thing of like speaking in the language of domination that like we say it's about compromise which thus implies that we're meeting each other in the middle but it's actually we're meeting each other wherever the dominant hand is is comfortable um so I think the way that I look at the cyborg theory is kind of about like what I always talk about uh or what not what I always talk about but what I always refer to with um John Waters saying of have faith in your own bad taste and I'm very interested in reclaiming what Kale Keegan calls like bad like he calls them bad trans objects but just bad objects in general that and and it kind of ties in I've been reading a lot of trans theory lately so I'm gonna probably sway into that a bit um but even you know Susan Stryker's letter to Victor Frankenstein and yeah you know where she's talking about harnessing rage that the language of domination is so often one that is as we talked about toxic and positive and like because of the positivity it is so in intensely toxic that the kind of 
opposite then in a western standard is always going to be negative but if we say no fuck you boy I'm like I'm gonna be happy in my in my cyborg position I don't need to speak in a language of like of like well I do need to speak in your language but I'm going to make sure that I have the space that I can speak in your language from my bad taste position if that makes sense yeah it does I think it's it's I think it's two different ways of essentially saying the same thing which is that from both of our perspectives in a way like the cyborg theory offers us a lens to view that messy working out of real life Mm. you know it 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 offers that opportunity to do it and it does it's to an extent it does speak in that same language of domination that it is effectively trying to disrupt but it still like in doing that it provides a way that you can open up that space for all the messiness and open Mm. up that space from you know I guess I'm thinking about it from my own perspective with my research is that like I I came to it with more of a fixed position than I thought and it wasn't until two two and a half years later that it kind of against my will I would almost say my position my subject position changed you know and Mm. and and I had to I had to kind of I had to do a lot of that back-end work (laughs) and a lot of that that back end processing and reprocessing and then for me I had a great issue with the fact that what was being processed and and in a way worked out on the back end was was not reflected in the front end you know as as Mm. a researcher or just as a person moving through the world as a whole and I was like well I I'm an okay liar but like I'm not that good (laughs) (laughs) and and that doesn't work and I and I think and that's probably why I have such an affinity for like haunted house stories or or, like ridiculous movies like Spy Kids because to me they open up um that space where the messiness works where things are make-believe and things aren't real but they are real you know all of this Mm. contradicting stuff happening at the same time because it's a reflection of what was happening in my own back end, I guess. Mm. Um, and like that, and I think it's it's that particular thing, or kind of that particular uh, experience that I would find cyborg theory useful for. I don't necessarily know, because also like, and this is my big issue with, and always has been with the cyborg manifesto, is it doesn't really, Harway doesn't, really mention or acknowledge um the existence of differently abled people mm-hmm. or, or disabled people um yeah. which i think is very interesting um dare i even say reductive mm. considering like i am of the view that all technology can be assistive technology but that like but then, I mean, I, that's a really blanket statement and it's very easily said, you know, well, that's not true. But all technology can actually be 
accessible and all technology can be designed to be assistive. But it just, what, the thing is that a lot of the time, a lot of the times the people who are designing the technology or the people who are marketing the technology or the people who are kind of taking the technology from the developer end to the consumer end are all the same people and have all had a very similar lived experience. So they haven't actually had to spend time in that messy, grey, cyborg place. And I'm even thinking about this as well, um, uh, not even just like to go off the the accessibility point, but I remember that video of the hand dryer that didn't register dark skin. Oh, yeah. And just even just that showing like the white supremacy of the world in that very moment in the same way that when we think about technology that like you know we can build in like accessibility tools into it but we are it's actually an afterthought for every one of us because we are so focused on adhering to that single position and that it and it is that comforting space but you know as I love to talk about Deleuze um you know about this whole thing that like something has to spill from the box at one point because we are not people who just live in 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 single and singular lives and there's a very like there's so many manners of experiences and affects that can change our subjectivities within an instant but the problem is is then the people who are generally the most well resourced or the most privileged are not the people that are ever like struggling with that oozingness or or maybe they are but they're just better at hiding it and maybe the, the capital aspect means they don't have to deal with it as much yeah I, I'd like for me it's just a, like as as I said like I I do still find the the the, the cyborg manifesto and cyborg theory in general very useful but that doesn't mean it's without its its flaws or faults mm. and I think that's what you know that's what all critical theory is it, it's just a perspective mm-hmm. you know it, it's kind of kind of goes back to what I was shouting about in that stupid seminar that time it's like it's it's not a concrete thing <laughs> you know, mm. which I think is actually something that Haraway says. Yeah, she does say she's like a cyborg theory doesn't want or desire to explain things in total theory. So, like she, it isn't offering the cyborg theory as a pe- like a panacea. I'm never mm. sure if I'm pronouncing that word right, <laughs> but you know, it, it's not necessarily supposed to be a cure-all it, but it is it does offer a perspective and I think what kind of in a way that what we have talked about it is its usefulness for offering a perspective to view and bring into focus that the messiness of occupying a single ideology or, or, or trying to occupy a, a single subjectivity trying yeah. to be trying to be one person who has lived one life and everything was fine like that doesn't happen Mm. I don't think it happens 
Oh, it definitely doesn't. I love the quote, actually, she says at the beginning about like the cyborg is resolutely committed to partiality, irony, intimacy and perversity. And just like it's just like it's almost like a funhouse character of a of a critical perspective that you have all of these kind of wacky elements that Mm -hmm. come into play but like I think as well like I think we've been having this conversation about like or we could have a conversation about like what is a cyborg really do you know that you had in that in that seminar but the answer is there is no cyborg and I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure she says in the manifesto like no one knows who cyborgs will be and you know that we are even just so subdued and we're so it's just become so normalized and institutionalized that technology is just a part of our lives and we just don't question it anymore and they did question it back in the late 70s and 80s and you know we got all those futuristic stuff about like 2020 and it's just like Jesus (laughs) I would have preferred that to be honest than now Oh, I would have loved a flying car. Um, flying car? I like I would even take video drone over what we have now, do you know? But I think like yeah. that was the whole the shock value of the manifesto when it was originally published and why like it created a storm of academics mm. being like, No. But the shock value of the manifesto came from this implication that the human body would be modified with you know mechanical or kind of cyber devices but now we live in a time where these formations aren't so shocking they're like they're normalized or considered cool or chic like that um kind of breastplate thing that I was showing you earlier um yeah the caress of the gaze it's really interesting it's just like a a kind of a shrug or a pashmina (laughs) (laughs) the pashmina I think cyborg pashmina is is going to be the name of this episode (laughs) what it actually is is it bolero it's a networked bolero that you put on and installed in the bolero are lots of cameras basically that reflect whoever is looking at the person wearing the bolero like the eyes like the eyes of the camera follow you if you're looking at it and that you know that was very chic you know that was a whole art house project kind of a design and yet, like at the time that Cyborg Manifesto was originally written, like that would have been absolutely terrifying. But now we're like, oh, yeah, that thing that existed in like 2016 or 2015. And I think it's like trying to have the argument of what is a cyborg subjectivity or like mm. what is a cyborg? What kind of person is a cyborg? I honestly think that that argument needs to go to bed yeah no I think it's it's like it's a little bit more about what we've been talking about which is perhaps the cyborg 
perspective is still useful in making, I don't want to say making sense of, but in in navigating um, the messiness of a human subjectivity. And Mm. I think particularly at the moment, kind of like sociopolitically, um, there is a lot of that working out happening. Not enough, but I think that's that's where it would mm, potentially be useful in 2020. Yeah, and I think what you said about like it, the cyborg is useful in understanding a human subjectivity, I suppose, in my own research because I'm looking at kind of what a citizen is and what a good citizen is I I'm you know I think I mean we we talked about Rosie (laughs) before I started recording you know Rosie Bredotis which I actually don't know if I'm saying her name right either so I'll just call her meow flower Rosie (laughs) um but um even just like what she talks about, about like the need for a post-human understanding of the world is really central to, I think, why why I think cyborg theory is really important because we've put so much emphasis on what a human is and we've constructed certain discourses around what a human is, what human rights are. And I know that Donna Haraway talks about this a lot in in when species meet and she takes fucking strips out of Deleuze because of um the becoming animal um she really yeah she she fucking tore him she's very cross like she she was proper like tamping is it tamping she's pure bad with him like it's (laughs) it's uncomfortable (laughs) yeah she was so pissed um it's like when two of your friends in the group are fighting with one another, but nobody's going to say it out loud. Like, yeah, that's what it feels like. And, and Rosie was just like, calm down. <laughs> like, um, and she literally was in that 2006 piece, which I will throw a link into the thing if you're interested in reading it for anyone listening. Um, but this need for us to kind of move beyond conceptions of what a human is and what a human can stand for. Um, because I think we have really narrow ideas of what humans are and I think you do that really well in your research because you're seeing it like what we see visually you know in on Instagram and what we see visually in the media more generally Um, and she talks a lot about this primacy of vision that has a complete control over us and it's like we take everything for face value as it is we don't actually consider any anything else about someone we just see the first thing about them that we look at them based on their aesthetic or whatever and that's the assumption made but this obviously has lots of implications then for like what you were saying earlier about like invisible illnesses or or like differently abled people who aren't like physically visibly quote unquote disabled that we just consider the world then through this very narrow lens as sure everyone's grand because I'm seeing everyone be grand and the reluctance to look beyond and look to the non-human 
is really important I think yeah I think so I think that like in what you're talking about there like this whole premacy of vision in terms of like what you might see on the internet for example gets yeah but like that like what what we see when we open up Instagram like we are seeing cyborgs you know mm. like we are seeing or sorry a better way to phrase that like when you open up Instagram you are seeing the product of a network of cyborgs like that will be in the back end or like Gotham puts it the backstage um of people's and like I know I'm thinking of the concert hall down UL and like backstage mm-hmm. like there's a couple of tunnels and there's loads of different dressing rooms and there's emergency exits like the back end has a lot going on versus the front end so that whole cyborg area that back end kind of that that network of I don't know flames that is happening you know that all comes together or parts of it are more importantly actually left out of that final kind of finished product and front end of and and that ends up being what you see a person present on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or TikTok whatever mm. um you know and so you I guess you could kind of say that there's like the front end cyborg and the back end cyborg because you know the the front end by itself it could be considered a cyborg as well but it's it's kind of like a wizard of Oz type of a of an image yeah definitely like that whole like we don't want to admit that we are a man with napoleon syndrome standing on a box Mm. like yelling and it reminds me so much of i don't know if you've seen season three of twin peaks (laughs) oh i like how you always bring it back to twin peaks i know it's either that or mark fisher i don't have any other interests but um there's like this little man that audrey is married to okay spoiler alert if you haven't watched season three yet but you should get on it um uh but he's like this little man and it's unclear whether he's married to her or something but then it's like Audrey is trapped in this fucking weird room with like mirrors and I feel like that like David Lynch was trying to get at the back end self that we are stuck in this weird white room looking at ourselves consistently being like is this the right thing to say or like there's this constant fear that we're going to step out of line and as a result then the mob are going to know that we're we're the replicants and they need to fuck us up um, <laughs> so I realized I, I crossed a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of pop cultural uh, metaphors there but oh I like it yeah. But I sorry, just what you were saying there, it kind of I think like in my own lived experience, like the I guess like anybody who would have seen me throughout the entirety of the repeal the Eighth Amendment campaign, like that you were actually seeing a cyborg. 
(laughs) that wasn't like that wasn't really me (laughs) because like the front end cyborg that you know appeared in public and spoke in public like far too much for my own liking that like that front end cyborg was very cool cam collected and centrist as opposed to the back end cyborg (laughs) who was just eternally screaming at everything that was happening so I think that's an example and possibly for like any of your podcast listeners who you know may have a vague cultural awareness of that moment in Irish history um maybe they can relate to that a little Mm. bit because I have found that as time has passed um more people than I thought had a similar experience in that and I would mm. direct them to the cyborg manifesto <laughs> as, as as a way of you know discovering that okay there's a particular perspective that can be put on that experience that very messy very grey experience and I don't have to say the words fine gale or Fianna Fáil. and I think as well like what you said there it's like it's really helpful to think through things through cyborg theory in like checking yourself um, in that way of like, because like, I mean, this is kind of what, what it stems back to my own research about like what people had to do for the marriage equality campaign and, you yeah, know, exactly. the sacrifices that you make in order to speak in the language of domination as it were I think it's like you know and like I'm so guilty of like you know shitting on liberalism and I like I like I like I like to you know as much as possible like shit on liberalism but I think that like the danger is the unchecked liberalism there's this strategic centrist position that you had to take because you were, you know, you were in a position where you had to train people and we were forced into taking together free yes directives, which we may come to in a later time, hopefully in a publication. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's it's about understanding how people, I suppose, evade, evade being read as deviant in a way. Yeah, and I think that kind of, per, maybe that is why um, there is an understanding of the cyborg as, you know, being kind of evil or wrong mm. in some sense, whereas I would totally disagree with that. And I would say, actually, you know, if you want to talk about the cyborg as being anything, it's being real you know like that's like I don't know I could be wrong like maybe Donna Haraway actually wants to murder me but (laughs) you're not the list (laughs) (laughs) I just I find him Um, but like that's that's kind of why I what I take from it and why I would Mm. have such an an affinity for all things cyborg (laughs) because for me I guess it has been the place where I could do a lot of that working out, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I think, 
I think this is like exactly what I want this podcast to be. It's like it's not necessarily being like ranting about Dwayne the Rock Johnson. <laughs> oh no, it absolutely is. Um, <laughs> but like it, it is, it's about like you know. I'm not saying I'm an expert on anything. You're not saying you're an expert on anything, even though you are an expert on your research. But like, we're not Harrowayans in any sense. And I'm not, a, I'm no more a Delusian than the next person. I think we might be getting close. So. Oh, <laughs> um, hopefully not. Because back to Rosie, um, you know, she talks about that whole thing that I, I mentioned to you earlier on about um that there's no such thing as a delusion or you know in this case there's no such thing as a heroine oh yeah, yeah but it's you know we're we're using this to figure out our own shit and I hope that people do read the pdf and like engage with it and I've sent it to a few people just to see like what they think about this because it is very provocative especially when you think about this being 1985 especially I think as well because like it was still in that kind of second wave feminism that was really hardcore into like fixed subjectivities and women's experiences and Donna was like what is this (laughs) I don't know her (laughs) you know um so it's just like I really appreciate this for its time and what it has kind of contributed to kind of I suppose wider questions in my perspective in queer theory you know questions that like Mel Chen have asked about like has the queer ever been human and how we can problematize the human within queer studies and queer theory particularly from like a uh, non-fixed identity position. I'm very aware that we've been on the phone for like three hours. When we think of things like borderland theories and like um, mestizia consciousness like Sherry Moriga and Gloria Anseltua, I think just approaching like Haraway as like the one person who talks about like cyborgs and shit like we need to think about kind of further explorations in 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 borderland theory and borderland thought I guess and I know she does cite a lot of people like um Sandoval and she talks about Octavia Butler and stuff like that but I wonder do you think that there is a problem I know that you mentioned disability but is there a problem in kind of ignoring of other I suppose, identity categories as well within this piece, because I know she says effective politics requires speaking the language of domination, but she's Mm. only really referring to gender as a fixed category when, you know, I suppose what I'm asking is I have the issue with her no truck bisexuality thing, Mm. but I'm wondering, does that extend past sexuality into issues of like race? ethnicity religious affiliation and stuff like that yeah I think it does and like I think again this is why I would consider the manifesto as like a a good jumping off point and I do I consider it very useful but again it's not without its faults you know it and 
I, I don't think any critical theory is without its faults, particularly a lot of the critical theory that y- you are introduced to if you go to college in white centrist Ireland, mm. <laughs> for example, because, and it kind of goes back to the same thing that I spoke about when I was talking about technologies. It's the same people teaching the same five white guys over and over and over again. And and I think that maybe Haraway, you know, fell into that trap a little bit. You know, she had a, quite a groundbreaking idea and perspective and a lens to view the world at the time, but she was only viewing her world. It, it, it doesn't offer a way that we can see race as socially constructed. Mm. You know, it, it, it doesn't, there, there isn't an awful lot of space there to talk about um, disability or differently able people. Like it, it, that space isn't there in this original text. But why I would see the text as so useful and why I keep coming back to it is to me that the text does offer a way to think about and talk about other states of being that are not just mine you know or that are not Mm. just Haraway's I think I will just ask you one last question and we can finish up after that um I'm interested about your thoughts about this whole informatics of domination and our obsession with data and science and I I'm only just thinking now about like this kind of infographic fatigue that we have on Instagram that we have like we'll put all these stats on on, yeah and all these memes about like well at least Joe Biden believes in science and yeah and I'm just like hmm but also what kind of science are you talking about and like I'm not like trying to be like anti- environmentalism but like I'm just interested in in hearing you speak a bit about this whole scientific era that we are living in oh yeah I mean listen we love a good data set and I don't like when I say we I literally mean everyone in the world nowadays seems to be whipping excel spreadsheets and pie charts and bar charts and Gantt charts oh, the Gantt. out of their behinds and I'm just kind of like oh okay um what's happening here also a small note the only person's pie charts who I actually care about are Anne Friedman's pie charts she has a newsletter she's also the co-host of um one of my favorite podcasts uh called your girlfriend um but yeah if you sign up to her newsletter um, you will see some of her pie charts. They're quite glorious. But this whole, um, it's a privileging of scientific discourse. Um, and it's a, ooh, how do you pronounce this properly? Sacralization of data that exists in like the 21st century or just in the whole kind of 2018 to 2020 era specifically. Um, it's, it's, it's very strange because, you know, people are like science, 
facts, completely objective, pure truth. You know, like it's almost it, it's they're seeing science and mathematical language as natural. Mm. And like there's something there's a purity that is projected onto the mathematical sciences and the scientific discourses. I do think that in relation to the cyborg, it, it complicates understandings of the cyborg because potentially like they are they are the like the scientific discourses and the mathematical purity would be considered a dominating force. But mm. you know so they're basically eating all the strands of resistance. <laughs> because mm. and like I guess an example of that would be like for a short a small moment of time, Instagram did become a platform where a lot of community activism was happening. Mm. And then as a result of the algorithmic value systems at play, um, you know, a lot of that community activism, their method of communication suddenly had to become very scientific. And so mm. there was a lot of millennial pink slideshows explaining how racist the policing system in the United States was. And like that for me was very jarring. <laughs> like mm. it's, it's, it was very, very strange. I could see where, you know, the, the people who were posting it were coming from. It was very strategic. But, you know, I guess it was it just kind of felt like uh, that compromise, that kind of sociopolitical compromise, mm. you know, meeting people in the middle. And if the dominating force is going to eat us alive, maybe if we camouflage ourselves to look like them, you know, it'll happen slower. Yeah, I yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I think but the sake the kind of the privileging of data, there is a really interesting article. Actually, I have the PDF that if you want to put it in the show notes, <laughs> the author is uh, Schwarzkopf, I believe is his name. Yeah, and he he has a he writes a very interesting article about I understood it as the parallels between religious beliefs um and kind of and and how we're coming to view data big data as you know the be all and end all when in actual fact that's not true and i think that there are a number of articles very good articles that can be found on the internet at the moment that actually prove or that would make the argument that like there's so much data at the moment like there's a glut of data there's too much Mm. we don't need this like and it's the same thing with the fitness trackers and the smart watches and it's like okay so you slept for eight and a half hours last night what are you going to do with that like you know like what yeah what do you act like and not i guess the people from the quantified self movement would probably actually burn me at the stake if they heard me say this but like what does that matter to you? How can you use it? You know, like, mm. what, what what difference does it make if you know how much you slept? <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah. good, for, good for you. Everybody feels better after a good night of sleep. But, like, what are you going to do with your massive, massive Excel spreadsheet? 
that's like eight months worth of steps and sleep do you know like realistically like what are you going to do with that (laughs) except like it's just the yeah it's like the problem then is the hyper fixation that people have on those things on the data on the numbers yeah and yeah and like in the like in my research definitely like it is it comes up again and again like this kind of optimizing of the the self and this optimizing of like oh you know I tracked all my food on my fitness pal for like three weeks and now I know every gram of monosaturated fat I consume and it's like okay interesting what does that mean like what does that mean for you in general mm. like how is it are, are you like a, a chemist are you a, <laughs> are you a, a doctor <laughs> you know like why do you need that you don't like I kind of feel like saying to people like you don't need that like you don't you don't actually need that probably what you do need is universal health care I guess is there anything that you want to add before we finish up or I suppose what you think is like the most important thing from the cyborg manifesto to like sum up everything that we've talked about for the current political moment I think probably what I mentioned just a little while ago was that you know there's there's no single fixed position and cyborg theory is a theory of holes and parts so it's it's very messy you know there it is cyborg theory and cyborg manifesto in particular is not without its problems with its faults but it it is that rejection of fixed boundaries and that I think is what I take from it as being the most useful I don't think over the last two and a half hours I've explained that particularly well but I hope that there was something in there (laughs) that people can can maybe find useful a little bit. No I I think you're absolutely right with that and I'm just thinking of like Haraway's quote of like we do not need a totality in order to work well together and what I suppose I talked about in, in the first little trailer episode about like that there's so much problems with like infighting around best leftist and who is the best person like to do a job or or whatever um that we actually just need to see empathy in and we need to see affinity in our struggle because the problem isn't the people that are trying to stand with you but are complicated by the language and of domination in many different ways it's more so about the bigger you know unnameable thing of capitalism and racism and misogyny and homophobia and transphobia that is also interlinked and so ubiquitous that we tend to pin problems in individual places and and individual people rather than saying well actually this is a wider issue and I think that what Haraway does very well 
is try and say we need to blur the boundaries of all of these aspects, human, technological, animal, so on, and and realize that we actually, that things have effective flows in between those different spaces. It is just very much about that thing of the manifesto offers, it does offer a perspective and a way to see lived experiences that don't have that like without the fixed boundaries mm. and to realize that then I guess in 2020 which is a very neoliberal era it's not always your failure like you you're not mm. it's not that you're not working hard enough you know it's it's a systemic failure and I think that does then that kind of realization invites the type of change that you are talking about which is that it takes a lot of people pulling the thing down from on from all sides to really let it crash and fall Mm. and like it's not about you know trying to put it back together it's it's starting again brand new Mm -hmm. because there are lots of systems at play and I think you can see that really clearly from your research and I've definitely had an insight into that in my research the system has failed us, mm. all of us, in all different pockets of society, in so many different ways. And I think it does take kind of stepping back from that, from your fixed position to really understand that what's happening to me is also happening to that person down the road who I actually can't stand them. Mm. But, but we're both of the systems that we operate in have failed us Mm. in some way and you know perhaps that's where the affinities can emerge from. Absolutely and I think that is a really lovely point to end on so thank you so much Louise for being the first guest on the podcast. I am so honoured that you said yes and I am so happy to just have this conversation with you because I feel like we have it ourselves a lot of the times and I think your insight into a lot of things does not get enough public attention so I think there's like a hundred or so people following the podcast Can't so wait. hopefully I'm you will only fan yes <laughs> we've talked about this also <laughs> yeah beware beware of the passport issue but thank you so much for um inviting me on your podcast it was loads of fun um I actually am just delighted that somebody let me rant and rave about cyborg theory and it's failing for two hours (laughs) it was an absolute joy and a pleasure and I think I think this podcast is amazing I think it's really, really brilliant. And I sincerely hope that I made sense to people. If not, they can feel free to DM me on Instagram because at the moment I've got nothing better to do than to spend time responding to people, <laughs> catching up on my correspondence. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing more episodes because Ellen, I do think, like I, I really do think you have a skill and a talent in how you... How do I say it? How you communicate your perspectives 
I just think it's, it's really interesting. It's really fascinating. So I'm oh. really looking forward to hearing even more. So that's it for this week, friends. I hope you enjoyed the episode and thanks so much for listening. Next week, I'll be talking to my friend David Hertry on Donald Winnicott's Fear of Breakdown. I am very unsure of psychoanalysis and I am not sure I fully understood this piece, but I'm really excited to talk to David about this. He's so incredibly knowledgeable and he is actually the reason why I'm doing this podcast because he was like, you should totally do this and shared his giant folder of critical theory with me. I can't even remember when I started being friends with David, but I just know that ever since I started following him on Twitter, I deeply respect him and value his opinions on everything. So I'm very excited to have David on the podcast. Uh, Just a quick note, as you probably saw from my Instagram page, there's been some personal familial issues going on in my life. So Even though I'm saying next week on the podcast, it's looking like I'm going to have to do this bi-monthly, but I hope that you will still follow me on this journey intermittently as it may have to be, and we can kind of keep getting involved in this process of knowledge sharing and, you know, critical engagement. So see you in two weeks' time. Thanks again, and stay oozy. Politics and neckties. And everyone was pleased to have met such a sensible man. So, I lived my life alone, without anyone I could really talk to. Until a short time ago. Paris calling flight FPDXY. Paris calling flight FPDXY. Come in, please, over. FPDXY to Paris.